Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. Flattening the curve. It's a phrase that most of us would not have recognized before the coronavirus pandemic brought it into our daily vocabulary. At this point, it is perhaps the single most important objective being pursued by governments across the world. The Indian government too has adopted a series of measures in an attempt to flatten the curve with mixed results. While there is a recognition that the government has sought to tackle the pandemic with tough measures, its handling of the situation and the fallout has also come in for a fair share of criticism. As the country starts unwinding from an extended lockdown, this episode of Interpreting India focuses on India's response to COVID-19 so far. To take stock of India's pandemic strategy, we have with us today Ms. K. Sujata Rao, a 1974 batch IAS officer of the then United Andhra Pradesh Kader. Sujata is a former union secretary of the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare, Government of India. Of her 36 years service as a civil servant, she spent 20 years in the health sector in different capacities at both the state and national levels. Sujata was a chairperson of the portfolio committee of the Global Fund for HIV AIDS, TB and Malaria from 2007 to 9, a member of the Global Advisory Panel of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a founding member of the Public Health Foundation of India, a member of the advisory board of the Ministerial Leadership Program of the Harvard School for Public Health, and a member of the high-level panel on global risk framework of the National Academy of Sciences. in the united states of america a member of the trusty population council and she serves on the boards of several ngos sujata holds an ma from delhi university and a masters in public administration from harvard she was a takemi fellow at the harvard school of public health in 2001 and 2 and a grow harlem brundtland senior leadership fellow at the harvard school of public health in 2012 She is the author of the recently published book Do We Care India's Health System which has been published by Oxford University Press. Sujata welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. I want to begin by asking your kind of overall assessment on where you think we are as far as the pandemic is concerned. What is the current state of play? How do you read the current trends uh, as we are? and once we've kind of taken a stock of where we are now i'd like to go back a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about how our strategy for covid has really evolved bit of a you know tricky question in the sense we've just come out of a very uh, stringent lockdown and instead of the curve kind of bending it is uh, continues to rise relentlessly and as you've seen in the past couple of days we have been going from 6000 infections per day to now over 10000 infections per day just going on increasing um so we are really now and we have not even reached the peak which uh, many have suggested it might be between july and august i too believe mid july to mid august is when i think we will reach the crescendo and uh, which means 
how many infections would that be? Because it's already uh, very, very uh, high. 10,000 a day is quite a high number for a country like India to cope with. So um, then it, this raises a large number of questions, of course, which we will discuss later on. Um, so what I see is that, you know, it, it will the, after the peak, is, is there going to be a possibility that the infections uh, may reduce? Uh, is there any, any suggestion to say that the virus kind of then slowly wears off, like it happened with H5N1 and H1N1 and SARS and so on? There is no evidence of that uh, as yet, unless and until some complementary um, uh, policies are taken up. Uh, so, you know, we have to see because this cannot be allowed to grow too much because at all costs, we must ensure that the infections are within our coping capacity and not allow people just to die only because we couldn't reach out to save their lives. That kind of situation is something that we must not at any cost uh, reach. The good thing about this infection is that it's not very fatal if we can take the right steps forward. Um, they do infect, but most of them are mild infections and they get over and they're time limiting. Um, but the bad news is it's highly contagious. So lots of people can be uh, getting infected. Um, so I think, Srinath, as we go along, uh, we'll, we'll discuss the further aspects. But right now, we are getting to the middle, to the eye of the storm, as they say in cyclone, when we describe cyclones. We are getting closer to the eye of the storm, which will come around, I think, in July. And then we'll have to see how the full-blown uh, explosion of uh, this infection is going to look like in this country. And you mentioned earlier on that the lockdown was a very tough one. And obviously, you know, the human cost of the lockdown itself has been quite high, right? I mean, uh, in a sense, the kind of pain that has been imposed on especially the poorer, weaker parts of our society. But uh, in your assessment, I mean, have we used the time of this lockdown in the best possible manner? You said that we are, you know, heading towards the eye of the storm. Has the lockdown enabled us to prepare better for it? Are we in a better position to weather the storm when it hits us, as it is going to? Well, you know, when you see the way Delhi is scrambling for beds, even after two months of a lockdown, it really leaves me very surprised and a little despondent, which I must confess. Um, to begin with, I'm not a great votary of such a draconian lockdown to have been announced at such a short time without any preparation at all. Uh, so, you know, the lockdown is an instrument for containing public health as a public health measure. Uh, could We could have been used to our advantage if we had implemented it properly and wisely and uh, strategically and well-planned. But since we didn't do that, the lockdown has had severe economic and social costs. Uh, when it was argued that it would give the country the very the time required to prepare itself for a bigger explosion of in infections, which it did. So it has kind of smoothened the curve instead of very sharp increases. We certainly have been able to smoothen it over a time period. But then you look at Delhi, I can't understand why they're, they're still struggling for deaths and for beds, uh, considering that uh, the peak hasn't been achieved, as reached as yet, and the, uh, the patient load isn't all that amazingly high that it cannot be coped. And Delhi has the best health infrastructure. And if Delhi is going to be like that, then I'm extremely worried about what's going to happen uh, in the country as a whole. 
So have we used it well? I'm afraid we've lost a good opportunity. I'm being a bit candid because this was a time when it was not just a question of getting ventilators and beds organized. More importantly, it was to have expanded and scaled up the testing infrastructure in an enormously uh, spectacular way. I mean, that was very critical uh, because testing is our only way. I, I'm a strong votary of uh, the efficacy of uh, testing uh, more and more people because that's the only way you can keep a track on where the virus is circulating and, and that is the only way you can have be on top of the epidemic. So uh, the delay, uh, the messy delay in buying the test, the kits on time, the delays in getting the PPE equipments and others uh, self-protective gear for the health workers in time, the delays in being able to foresee what is going to be the case after lockdown is lifted to prepare for the health infrastructure, to disaggregate patients if required, coming up with proper protocols for mild, how do you deal with mild uh, cases versus severe cases. All this, uh, these are uh, some of the delays which do uh, surprise me and I'm a bit worried about uh, uh, what really, how, what the thinking really that is going on behind uh, um, uh, managing this and coping with this uh, epidemic. So that's where we stand. Uh, have we used the time well? Not really. I, w- I wouldn't give it a thumbs up. I would be very tentative in my judgment about that. Sure. Uh, but some states in India, you know, like Kerala, for instance, uh, seem to have managed to deal with the pandemic much better than others. So I'm just wondering what is explains this kind of variation in response and whether there is still time to learn something from the states which have done better. Uh, and scale up a few things along the lines that uh, they have managed to do? Or is it that their success is very sweet and it's not really replicable in another context? Well, you know, uh, Srinath, I mean, this country, you can never, never come up with one uh, full answer because it's so diverse. Uh, state to state, it differs. So it's a bit difficult to generalize. I agree that there. Now, Kerala has always been an outlier on everything. Um, and they really have their act together in a very systematic and a sound uh, fashion, which I'm sure you know uh, what all they did. And they just come out of controlling Nepal. So they were an army well exercised already on the battlefront, you know, unlike the other states. They had the experience, the history, the knowledge, and so on, which they, which Kerala as a health system, and so also Tamil Nadu, tend to use a lot. They use their history and the knowledge base very effectively. And that is why I'm a bit surprised about Tamil Nadu, what really went wrong, where they lost the first initiative to get again, uh, gain control over the epidemic. But that's no lesser. I mean, the public health system in uh, Tamil Nadu, if you were to ask me a couple of months ago, I was rated it higher than in Kerala. And so I'm a bit surprised that these two states, which are so strong on the public health systems, Kerala did it so well and Tamil Nadu uh, has fallen uh, severely, uh, fallen back. So these are some things that we need to do some micro understanding. Is it the governance aspects? Is it uh, you know leadership aspect? What really went wrong? Uh, in so far as learning lessons from Kerala, the advantage of Kerala it's not easy to replicate Kerala only because they 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 have a certain uh, it's uh, you know. Uh, uh, environment of work, which I find difficult to explain in the sense that, first of all, institutionally, they have right from the chief minister to the gram panchayats, 
they have a command structure where a message given reaches to the villages right there. So it is a participatory democracy on the go, right from the manner in which the governance structure is institutionalized in Kerala. So that's a very big advantage that they have. Um, second is that they, they utilize the panchayats, uh, the community, and they utilize the frontline health workers very effectively. But uh, but the real strength of Kerala was applying the public health principles of contact tracing and tracking every case right from day one. The, the brilliance of Kerala is that don't take uh, any case lightly. They take the first case as seriously as they would take the thir- thousandth case or the hundredth case. So, you know, right from the day they got the first case on January 30th, they started rolling and they started doing the contact tracing, drawing up the heat maps, drawing up the trace maps, and they were very, very thorough kind of screening. So, for example, in any other state which also did uh, tracking and tracing, they might have wound up with one person and then 13 uh, contacts. Whereas in Kerala, they went into such minute detail that I think their average was one is to 40. So that kind of detailed mapping and then covering them up with uh, messages or further testing to see if any one of them got infected and then from there to go on to the, uh, the secondary sources and so on was a very thorough job that they did. And they involved every arm of the government. And if you see where how beautifully the chief minister would come and tell, talk to the people every day, every single day, he would address the media and the people, telling them what they have done and what more to be done. But at the, but at the same time, and always you would see that he is working behind the leadership of the health minister. It was always Shailija teacher who was really setting the agenda and saying, this is what we need to do. In other words, I'm not taking it as a personal thing. I'm taking it as an institutionally. The health department is always in command of the situation. There's never a chief minister's office where some secretary there sitting would give a direction to the health secretary. So that is, I think, uh, uh, extremely critical when you're dealing with epidemics and pandemics, which you won't find anywhere else in any other state that I know of. Um, the, The third point is that Kerala has... Uh, as I said, very participatory governance structure. But in addition to that, they tend to not make this binary public-private and so on. They just get in wherever there is talent and expertise, whether you are this political persuasion or that. I mean, these kind of external factors don't count to them. They just get the best experts along together. So there are retired IAS officers, there are uh, currently working public health specialists, there are economists, there are social scientists. They all get together and they get into teams and then they discuss uh, what, what should the strategy be. So I think this is one of the few states that has a post-lockdown plan of action submitted to the chief minister well in time. They have a surveillance system that they've set up already and they brought up the first report of the results of such a surveillance system. They have the detailed maps of who and where and how they were infected and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a model which is worth replication and learning and studying in detail and uh, making the, uh, building the health systems in other states uh, on the same lines. The other axes of difference in terms of you know, patterns in which this pandemic seems to have played out is obviously will be uh, rural versus urban. And uh, you know, the, the, the 
scale of public health infrastructure between rural India and urban India is quite uh, different. Also, we've now seen that, you know, during the lockdown, but more so once the lockdown has started easing, uh, a number of migrant workers, literally hundreds of thousands of them have uh, moved back to their ancestral villages, uh, which means that, uh, you know, particularly rural India is now going to face uh, perhaps greater and increasing demands on the public health infrastructure. So I was just wondering, uh, how do you see that particular divide playing out in the context of COVID? You know, right now it is, uh, as you can see, the the epidemic is still very urban-centric. Yes. And uh, we haven't really, uh, it hasn't really gone in an alarming way into the rural areas. So, and there is this feeling that uh, migrants might have uh, carried the infection back to the rural areas and so on, which is, of course, not uh, quite well-founded uh, apprehensions. I don't blame people who feel that way. And there is evidence to show that migrants have come back to the infection. But then this kind of focus that media tends to give as if it's only the poor people, the poor migrants who are taking the infection there. What about the several people who have come from abroad, the middle-class Indians who came from abroad and brought this infection, not just only to the urban areas, but then they also went into their homes. In, I know, for example, in Andhra Pradesh, they did go into the rural areas and also started spreading over there. So uh, what I'm saying is outsiders have played a role in bringing this infection. And uh, when it comes to the migrant issue, I think that was the greatest tragedy of all. And you've seen the kind of human and social costs that we've had to pay for it. Now, what I do feel is that, uh, you know, I worked closely with uh, with migrants getting back home here in Hyderabad. And uh, I interacted with them quite closely and I didn't get infected. So it has to really be seen from where they're coming. I think people coming from Bombay or from very hotspots, high hotspots like Dharavi and so on, could be taking it back. Now, the, the problem here would be that one spreads in the rural areas, not in Tamil Nadu or Kerala, I wouldn't be worried, not even in Andhra or Karnataka, but I certainly would get very worried if it happens in a big way in Bihar and UP because the rural health infrastructure is abysmally bad. It's really very bad, not only in the public sector, but also in the private sector. There's hardly any private sector. So it is extremely important for these states to ensure whether Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, Bihar, UP, um, and uh, Madhya Pradesh to ensure that the infection gets stemmed right in the beginning and doesn't get uh, that doesn't spread too much. And in that context, the good news is that the I think there is a lot of I was just talking to the Chhattisgarh Health Secretary today. They seem to be giving a lot of emphasis. They are equally concerned and they are aware of this problem in doing a lot of public aggressive public education among the rural people, getting ashas to go and visit each home trying to tell them that, you know, in case you have fever, come forward and get tested. Uh, the village communities themselves are not allowing, we read this in the media, allowing migrants to come inside the village, making them stay in quarantines. And in a place like Chhattisgarh, they have a call center. They are ringing up each one of those uh, 5,000 migrants who are quarantined to see whether they're getting food and whether they're okay and is there any problem. I mean, this kind of follow-up that they're doing of outsiders getting into the rural hinterland is uh, quite impressive in some states. So I, it all depends on how they're going to manage uh, this issue. But the fact that could they have been stopped from going home, that whole issue was, as you know, badly handled. And two, was it possible for the 
uh, uh, the state which was sending the migrants to have tested them beforehand. That was also because they were in thousands and lakhs. Uh, it was not possible to, to have done that. So we'll have to see how it blows out in the near future. Let's hope that we, that not much damage has been done. Yeah. You have actually sort of also pointed out in the same context that, uh, you know, there is an urgent need for better center state cooperation in coordinated response to the pandemic. Now, of course, you know, control of infectious diseases is part of the concurrent list of the constitution. But clearly there has been this kind of lack of coordination between the center and the states and also amongst the states. Uh, why do you think we have kind of not been able to pull together in this way? I mean, w- w- what is it that is lacking and where is the... Uh, where are areas that we can still address in order to, you know, be better prepared going forward for what's coming? See, in the central state where infectious diseases are concerned, we have experience of how we have handled malaria, HIV, AIDS, leprosy, uh, TB. All these come under the infectious disease control programs and uh, immunization, polio eradication and so on. Where the, what the center is supposed to do and what the state is supposed to do are the boundaries are very, very clear. And because it's in the concurrent list, the state assumes a much, and in, in infectious diseases, it's much more important for the central government to have really taken uh, leadership in this whole uh, issue. And what, what happens then? They are the ones who ought to be laying down guidelines. That's the role of the center. Center is supposed to backstop the, the state's with detailed guidelines of what the strategy should be, how it should be implemented, by whom should it be implemented, uh, supplement with whatever other infrastructure support that is required, and fund it, provide the necessary funding to go in tandem with these other uh, elements and see that they get the support and they get the necessary technical support and the financial support required to implement the strategy drawn up by the experts in Delhi. And we expect Delhi to have consulted leading institutions around the world. And in this case, it was so necessary because the knowledge gaps of uh, COVID are so extensive that, you know, I would have imagined many more of uh, much more consultation with WHO and every other agencies and epidemiologists and so on to have laid down this whole strategy and given the guidelines for implementation. So therefore, in, in infectious disease control programs and epidemics, The state doesn't really think. The state only implements what the central government has laid down because the assumption is that the thinking of the strategy and so on has been done there. And it's very critical that there is a uniformity of the treatment guidelines and the strategic guidelines being implemented. For example, I'll just deviate a little bit. Supposing, uh, you know, you allowed everyone to have their own way of testing TB and uh, give their own uh, uh, treatment protocols, then uh, would we be able to contain TB? No, because there is a certain uh, um, uh, you know, level of expertise available. There's some tested and tried protocols, and that then becomes a national strategy, and that national strategy is implemented to get quick results. So, so th- that's how we have done all other infectious disease control programs, a protocol for uh, how many times a child should be vaccinated for polio eradication, uh, whether trivalent, bivalent, which vaccine to use, was all laid down by the government of India. In this case, uh, what, what has worried me is you put a national lockdown, you don't consult the states um, because, you know, initially they never consulted the states at all. 
Then later on, when you find implementation problems, you immediately consult them. And now, gone the other way, where you say, okay, now we are opening up the economy, that is, uh, you know, no more lockdown, and you manage the deal yourself. So at the same time, in one go, you're getting migrants by train, you're getting them by bus, you're getting the people from abroad by, uh, by planes, and then you open up the whole economy, then you're allowing transport, restaurant, uh, uh, religious places, everything opened up at one go. I mean, uh, you know, how do you take decisions there and then leave it to the states to say, okay, now you do, you, you know, you hang with your own book. Uh, here it is and do whatever you can. So this is something that I have found uh, a little perplexing because I really don't understand the, strat- the strategy that's been rolled out over here and the center-federal relationship, I'm not able to figure out because right now the states are lacking in liquidity. They have no money. Uh, this is one epidemic where it's not only about getting kits and, and the hospitals up and running, but it also has so many expenditures on ensuring rations and jobs and you know giving other economic relief alongside. So um, this is a, a real problem at the state level to see that uh, the, the support from the central government has not been consistent, I would say it has been up and down. Um, so for example, therefore, what has happened is in many states is the chief ministers who are taking the initiative. It's a chief minister who's saying, uh, say in a state like Telangana, who should be tested, who should not be tested. Uh, it is the, uh, the chief minister who says whether it should be opened up or it should not be opened up. The health departments of those states may have a view separate, but that's not taken into account. So this kind of potential for confusion is uh, possible when you don't have a consistent uh, relationship worked out on implementing. So what could be done? I think uh, immediately the the central government should take stock of state-wise. Again, within the state, where are the areas and the spots which they know? Because as I've said, it's a few cities and about maybe 60, 70 hotspots, and then give guidance to the states. They have to remember that the states don't have adequate public health and epidemiological expertise to really draft out a meaningful strategy for the states to implement. Places like Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, who is there? There's no one there at all. And I think this technical backup support has to come from the central government to each state by state, because every state is at a different um, uh, you know, part uh, different uh, uh, stage of the epidemic, and uh, they have to be uh, uh, assisted in saying that you know how do we deal with the situation if it blows further, and how do we try and contain it? So this kind of technical assistance is extremely crucial, and I would also argue that uh, I think the federal government must come in and help the states with more funding. Uh, you know, get them better kits, uh, get them the drugs, get them the support in some human resources if required, because I think what they need to do once it's gone into the community in some of these hotspot areas is to expand your testing and make it, as I've always argued, make it free so that this fear and stigma uh, is removed, which is very, very critical for gaining uh, upper hand on the epidemic. Now, at this point, it seems like you know much of the country's medical capacity is really geared towards addressing the pandemic. Uh, I was wondering what kind of burdens does this place on the health infrastructure, 
particularly from the point of view of dealing with patients who are suffering from non-COVID diseases uh, because, you know, COVID is eating a lot of mind space and I'm sure in terms of actual real deployment of resources as well. So how are we thinking about that kind of a balance? Because, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, in a, a single-minded pursuit of COVID should not result in the neglect of uh, patients whose needs may not be coming from COVID. Well, frankly, this COVID did come in as a unplanned event, uh, uh, so, you know, I don't think they had time to really strategize to see what happens to the non-COVID. And an element of panic also did uh, enter, uh, as you saw, the Delhi chief minister asking, uh, leading a private hospital to earmark 80% of their beds for COVID. I mean, that is not possible because there will be non-COVID cases too. Um, there is an adequate amount of data that seems to be av- you know, available in the media to suggest that a lot of chemotherapy sessions of cancer patients have been postponed, immunization was suspended, uh, TB drugs in many states, uh, you know, have not been delivered. So there are a lot of uh, uh, disruptions in the non-COVID cases, uh, case treatment and uh, in, uh, in, uh, hand, and in the preventive action that is required to be taken in a timely manner. Now, the ministry has, since a month now, been urging the state governments to see that critical services are maintained. And uh, what I feel is that, you know, fortunately, this epidemic right now is, uh, we've got enough data to say where exactly it is. It is not as if it's affecting all the states, all the um, districts, and all the villages with equal ferocity. It's only in some places, some 70 districts and in in the districts in some places. So therefore, it is possible for us to really, uh, you know, identify those hotspots and contain them and focus on COVID over there. But in the rest of the, that's almost three quarters of the country, the rest of the non-COVID health management and the health delivery of services should be continued with, you know. So I, I, I think um, the, the health system will definitely uh, limp back to normalcy and the health ministry is quite aware of uh, those challenges. But that balance will have to be found very quickly. So a final question for you. Uh, you know, you've worked for so many years in the government of India, uh, particularly public health has been a domain where you've worked at practically every level, not just within India, but abroad as well. Uh, do you think this current COVID pandemic can be something of a turning point in the way that we think about public health as a issue in this country from the perspective of governments and its priorities? Or do you think it's going to be business as usual once the pandemic is behind us at some point? You know, what else can nature and can the uh, virus do to make people understand the importance of public health? I think this has been the most devastating epidemic uh, after 1918, and in my my career, I've never come across anything more devastating. So, if you don't learn from this experience, nothing else, and never will. Uh, I mean, nothing else can teach us. So, I'm just hoping that uh, world over, there will definitely be a much greater concern. I mean, once it gets settled down uh, globally, there will be a huge amount of uh, thinking on uh, on getting public health back into center stage. Uh, in fact, even after Ebola crisis in 2014-15, there were almost six uh, high-level committees constituted 
globally to evaluate critically the role of the WHO and how it had failed uh, in all the pandemics before and after. So there was a call for, you know, changing the entire working style and, and priorities of WHO. But then it again slipped back. But I think this time, uh, globally, there so many countries have also economically suffered a lot. It's just not only lost lives, but economic um, uh, suffering has been acute. So I think there will be a lot of changes that we will see globally, which will push India's policymakers, who still don't give health the priorities that it deserves. Even now, I feel health is not such a priority. They are just thinking in terms of 15,000 crores to quickly get over this COVID, uh, provide the drugs, provide the PPE kits, uh, provide the kits for testing and so on. And then they think that work is done. But what really needs to be uh, invested is the public health infrastructure, which is in shambles in our country. And much more efforts need to be made to strengthen the public health infrastructure. Our surveillance system is quite weak. And that needs to be massively strengthened so that we don't uh, suffer this kind of an epidemic again. I, I think with a global push and a realization within the country, the kind of price we've paid, uh, both socially and economically, I think there'll be two good outcomes. One is some amount of uh, attention to public health as versus um, just uh, having insurance programs for some uh, cardiac surgeries and, uh, and cancer uh, um, interventions. Uh, and two, migrants' welfare, I think, will get some traction and some kind of uh, uh, support. You know? So when you talk about universal health and health for all, we didn't have an identity and we didn't even know they existed. So you know, their own access to health, can you imagine millions of people in urban areas didn't have access to basic health and they could have very easily become carriers of infection. So this, this realization that, you know, universal health is much more than uh, doing a couple of packages of services to, uh, to a few people will gain traction. And I, I do hope that more money uh, will be allocated. And more than money, I've always believed the basic reform and the direction in this country has to change towards public health, towards basic duties of a government, namely surveillance systems, primary care, public health, uh, cadres everywhere. These are the primary functions of a state. And I hope that that focus will go on to that. I hope uh, your hopes are accurate and that the powers that be are uh, listening to these wise words. Uh, Sudhata Rao, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a delight talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. <laughs>